Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me this week as we conclude our Marilyn arc with the last days of Marilyn Monroe, as well as her lasting legacy. Before we begin, I do want to pull out my spyglass and give enormous thanks to Jessica and Pauline M., our latest supporters on Patreon. I am so grateful to you both for joining the Patreon community over there. Huge thanks to you and to all of you for joining me as we conclude with our Mirrorball episodes. Marilyn Monroe, August and Everything After. Let's investigate. has taken quite a ride and we have made it into the month of August 1962. We've heard in our last episode, Marilyn is making a lot of phone calls, doing a little bit of drinking, calling a lot of friends old and new, revealing more and more about what's going on in her own personal life. Things that oftentimes sound absurd, like she's going to marry Robert Kennedy. The questionable Dr. Greenson is back in town. Marilyn is seeing him regularly as well. Peter Lawford will be spending a lot of time with Marilyn Monroe this week. Remember, Patricia is back with the Kennedy family in Hyannisport. On Thursday, August 2nd, Marilyn will attend a party at Peter Lawford's home. On August 3rd, 1962, Marilyn will do an interview with Life magazine where she is quoted here with something really profound, I think. You're always running into people's unconscious. This same night, Friday, August 3rd, Peter Lawford will take Marilyn Monroe and her publicist, Pat Newcomb, to dinner. Marilyn will have so much to drink this night at dinner that she is not recognizing people that she knows. One of those people is Billy Trevia, the costume designer for eight of her films. It takes her a while to recognize him. She's moving very slowly. Marilyn's not doing too great. The thing Marilyn, though, has become more determined to do is talk to Robert Kennedy. The last call she made to Kennedy was Monday, July 30th. This call was received at the Department of Justice. It is eight minutes long. Perhaps Marilyn talked to Bobby. Perhaps she talked to Bobby's secretary. Marilyn does not get the information that she's looking for in that call. But in a piece of the follow-up conversation that she has with Robert Slatzer around this time, he will reveal that Marilyn tells him she knows Bobby is coming to California for the weekend. Marilyn is desperate to find out where he will be staying. Marilyn will make a follow-up call to Peter. Peter says he doesn't know and would like Marilyn to call Patricia at Hyannisport. Marilyn does reach Patricia Lawford where she acknowledges, sure, Bobby's coming to California this weekend, but he's not coming to Los Angeles. He's going to San Francisco with his wife and children. They have reservations at the St. Francis Hotel. So by Friday, August 3rd, Marilyn apparently is calling the St. Francis Hotel. She's done it multiple times in the afternoon. The last time, August 3rd, before dinner, she will leave messages 
none of Marilyn's messages are returned that we know of. Friday, August 3rd, Marilyn, back from dinner. Pat Newcomb will stay with Marilyn overnight in Marilyn's guest room in her 5th Helena drive home, leaving Marilyn Monroe angry, drunk, frustrated, calling the St. Francis Hotel again and leaving another message. Marilyn will have time for a little bit of Nembutal, but even dosing herself does not bring Marilyn sleep. There are phone calls all night long. Marilyn will talk to her friend Jeannie Carmen the following morning, saying the caller, a woman, kept repeating the same words. Leave Bobby alone, you tramp. Leave Bobby alone. This is from James Spada's The Man Who Kept the Secrets. The calls didn't stop until 5.30 a.m. Marilyn said she couldn't tell who it was, Jeannie Carmen said. She didn't think it was Ethel. She said she'd recognize Ethel's voice, but she did think it was somebody Ethel had put up to it. She said the voice did sound kind of familiar, but she couldn't place it. Deeply rattled, Marilyn couldn't get to sleep even after the call stopped and by daybreak she was exhausted. She called Jeannie Carmen and suggested she come over with a bag of sleeping pills and drink some wine with her. We were sleeping pill buddies, Carmen recalled, but she was busy that day and begged off. So here we are, Saturday, August 4th morning, after a night of being harassed by constant phone calls. Eunice Murray's son-in-law, one of the workmen in Marilyn's home, recalls being shocked at how Marilyn Monroe looked this morning. He said she looked sick or very drugged. He'd never seen her looking this way. Peter Lawford this particular Saturday is also alarmed. Maybe he's talked with Marilyn Monroe. Maybe he's talked with Pat Newcomb. But Marilyn has a demand and she wants Bobby Kennedy to tell her face-to-face why the relationship is ended. Time has given us an opportunity to further reveal that Robert Kennedy was in California that weekend. Even our man Nick knows about this. Everybody knows about this detail, but not many people talked about it for a long time afterward. Again, two very good sources, Anthony Summers Goddess and James Spada's The Man Who Kept the Secrets, can pull you through the account of perhaps what goes down, although we're never going to know how it all goes down. There are a lot of people floating in and out of Marilyn Monroe's home Saturday, August the 4th. There are a lot of phone calls, too. There are many people, again, in the fullness of time who have talked about listening to the recorded tapes from all the bugging devices of what happened in Marilyn's home that afternoon and evening and Still some 60 years later, the events of her death are less of a mystery, but also sometimes more of a mystery. I love this bit from Sarah Churchwell's biography, The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. I cannot recommend that highly enough to you. Churchwell opens to define part of this quandary. Sometime during the night of August 4th, 1962, Marilyn Monroe died of an overdose of barbiturates. She was alone in the bedroom of her new home at 12305 Fifth Helena Drive, an unpretentious Spanish bungalow in Brentwood, California, that she had only recently purchased. It was the first house she had owned by herself. In the summer of 1962, divorced three times, Marilyn Monroe lived alone. 
Her dead body was discovered in bed, naked. There was no note, but there were dozens of pill bottles on the bedside table, most of them empty. When the first policemen arrived, they found Monroe's housekeeper doing the laundry, and they began to hear conflicting stories about the events that had taken place between 8 p.m. on August 4th and 4.25 a.m. on August 5th when they were notified. These reports would only grow more confused and disordered as time passed and more voices added to an already convoluted tale. The disputes have never been resolved, and conflicting stories continue to spread, scrambling fact, speculation, belief, and accusation. The coroner's official verdict was probable suicide, but the myth is not satisfied with the probable. New stories appear regularly, each of which promises to deliver the truth, a different truth, at last. More often than not, they only offer another tangled web of anecdote and conjecture, and these competing myths have become the only truth we have. In some stories, Marilyn kills herself, in despair over the end of her career, or a love affair, or both. In others, she was never happier. Her career was flourishing, and she was about to marry. Most of the tales, though, are murder mysteries— and the culprit varies from one account to the next. The Kennedy men, not just John and Robert, but in some variants, their father Joseph, are fingered most often, but she might have been murdered by the mob, or Jimmy Hoffa, or the CIA, or J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, or communists. Some prefer Khrushchev, others Castro. In some versions, it was her psychiatrist who'd done it, in others her housekeeper. It was assassination. It was accident. She was destroyed by the powerful men who manipulated her. She was her own worst enemy. Yet each of these endings concludes its own plot, and each plot differs in key respects. Yet they all insist theirs is the true story of Marilyn Monroe's life. The authors of these tales are all not paranoid cranks. Monroe's major biographers differ widely about her death, and many respected writers have accepted the possibility that Marilyn could have been murdered. After the Perfumo scandal, Watergate, Vietnam, Iran-Contra, and the Clinton-Lewinsky affair, the prospect of a cover-up at the highest levels of government is not only paranoid, it is politics as usual. This book is a fantastic resource if you would like a comparison and contrast, almost a collection of the number of Marilyn Monroe biographies. Sarah Churchwell really does an excellent job. I use this excerpt from Churchwell to deal with how convoluted the details of Marilyn's death do appear, do render, do change, even 60 years later. How she died, how Marilyn died, has somehow become a fascinating parlor game, and we could know every detail of it and talk of it for eons, but I think sadly that misses the entire point of Marilyn Monroe. This waif, this Norma Jean girl who could never find her own image, her own reflection, she's constantly seeking it. She's a kid who continues to get dealt bad hands and play them the best she's able. Sometimes bad men, sometimes bad choices, 
just to find a little solace and again, seeking herself. I think Marilyn gives us, every one of us, such a remarkable gift of a lens to see her and in turn ourselves through. Marilyn reflects. She's a mirror ball. She shows us whatever it is that we need to see, what we want to see. It's easy to understand why every biographer has a different take. I would encourage you to find your own. Marilyn's death will stun the world when it is announced August 5th, 1962. Marilyn Monroe is dead at the age of 36 from what is ruled a probable suicide from a self-administered overdose of a combination of nembutal and chloral hydrate. Our episodes could go on with another two dozen episodes with the various accounts, the details, again, the more stories that get revealed. But here at Done and Done, I want to go back and focus on our man Nick, on Dominic Dunn for a moment, about what he says about the death of Marilyn Monroe. This is taken from an interview with the Archive of American Television. Dunn is asked, what are his thoughts, his theories about Marilyn Monroe's death? Dunn will answer, I remember it was a Sunday morning. I was going to church. I was in my car. I had to stop the car on the side of the road. I could not believe that she was dead. The follow-up question from the interviewer, was it really a surprise? You knew she had trouble. And Dominic says, yes, it was a surprise. And the interviewer's going to go one more. What, What are your theories? What do you think happened? And Dominic Dunn gets unusually quiet. He says, you're not going to put words in my mouth. Dunn knows fully what the interviewer is doing here. But the interviewer follows up and says, but you've mentioned it in print. And Dunn says, I have? For me to you investigators, I have never seen Dominic Dunn in print writing about any theory he has about Marilyn's death. And I've done a lot of looking. If y'all know where this is, I'd love to find out. I can't reference this. But Dunn will, I don't know, kind of halfway take the bait here. And he'll say, yeah, there are a lot of theories and no one truly does know. At least I don't think anyone knows. She had had an affair with both Kennedy brothers. Robert Kennedy had been there that day. There was a tense time between Marilyn and the Kennedys at this time. I don't know what happened. So perfectly fine. But Dominic Dunn would have heard exactly what happened within his Hollywood days and beyond. Dunn is hanging with a lot of the players involved and will continue to know these players to the end of their lives or his. Details about the last hours and days of Marilyn's life are murky at best. Our best witness to those hours is Marilyn's housekeeper, Eunice Murray, who has her own questionable motives. Dr. Greenson's there as well. Peter Lawford's there as well. So is Robert Kennedy. Dominic Dunn, I believe, is focused in on the Peter Lawford angle of this. So again, continuing from James Spada. In the decades since Marilyn Monroe's death, there has been so much obfuscation, so much evasion, so many lies told about the circumstances that many people have come to believe that Robert Kennedy and Peter Lawford were directly involved with her death, that they may have even murdered her to keep her 
from revealing her involvement with the Kennedy brothers. There was, without question, a cover-up, and Peter Lawford was a part of it. But the weight of evidence points only to a cover-up of Marilyn's relationships with the Kennedy brothers, not of her murder. It is virtually certain that Robert Kennedy did not see Marilyn again after his last visit to her house, and that Marilyn was still alive throughout the evening hours of August 4th. She spoke on the telephone to a number of people that night, including a studio hairdresser, Sidney Gilleroff, at 9.30, a recent lover, Jose Bolanos, between 9.30 and 10, and Jeannie Carmen at 10 p.m. There can be no question that a massive cover-up began the moment Marilyn Monroe died. It started with a several-hour delay in notifying the police and continued with carefully rehearsed versions of what happened from Eunice Murray and Marilyn's doctors, versions that contain glaring inconsistencies and, it will later be learned, evasions. It extended the next morning to the confiscation of Marilyn's telephone records by the FBI. Those are not the only telephone records that are looking to get revealed here. Taking some of Peter Lawford's moments this particular day, on the night of Saturday, August the 4th, Peter Lawford will call Fred Otosh again. We've talked about Fred Otosh and his involvement in all of this through our arc this season. Peter Lawford calls Fred Otosh, hey man, I got a big problem. I need to come and see you. And Fred Otosh, a former Los Angeles police detective, now a private investigator, has put bugs in every home in Hollywood, it appears. Sunday, August 5th, it is Peter Lawford showing up at Fred Otosh's home. Fred Otosh thinks that Peter Lawford is half-crocked or half-doped. He's a nervous wreck. Peter Lawford's first words to Fred Otosh are, Marilyn's dead. From James Spada, as Otosh recalled it, he told me that Bobby Kennedy had broken off the affair with Marilyn and that she was hysterical in calling the White House and the Justice Department and Hyannisport, insisting that Bobby get in touch with her and that the Department of Justice had called Bobby in San Francisco and told him, you better get your ass down to L.A. because she's out of control. Lawford told Otosh he was terrified that an investigation of Marilyn's death would reveal her affair with the Kennedy brothers. He had already been to her house to clean up, quote-unquote, and had removed what incriminating evidence he could find. But he was afraid he'd miss things. He wanted Otosh to return to the scene and finish the job. Me? Otosh responded. You gotta be fucking nuts. If I went within four miles of that place, I mean, I'm too well known. I want no part of it. But Fred Otosh did send over an associate, the same man who installed the surveillance wires in Marilyn's house several months earlier. Fred Otosh said he knew the place very well. He finished the job that Lawford started, and he found the things that Lawford had left behind. Excerpting here, continuing from Spada, as it concerns Peter Lawford, the police wanted to question Peter, but were told that he'd left town on a trip and was unavailable. Investigators never followed up with him, although he had gone no farther than Hyannisport. Some observers believe that those who maintain their silence were rewarded. 
Eunice Murray, who began to change her story in 1985, took seven trips to Europe in the years immediately following Marilyn's death, and she was not a wealthy woman. Pat Newcomb was rumored to have gone directly to the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport, and from there on an extended vacation. Truman Capote, a close friend of Monroe's, said, The Kennedys didn't kill her, the way some people think. She committed suicide, but they did pay one of her best friends to keep quiet about their relationship with her. The friend knew where all the skeletons were, and after Marilyn died, they sent her on a year-long cruise around the world. For a whole year, no one knew where she was. Peter, for his part, never said on tape anything other that Marilyn's death was a tragic accident that left him deeply remorseful that he had not gone to her aid immediately. He insisted until his death in 1984 that Bobby Kennedy was on the East Coast the night Marilyn died, and the talk of the affairs between Marilyn and the Kennedy brothers was nothing but nonsense. He repeatedly turned down large sums of money to tell the story. In 1976, he signed a contract with a New York publisher to write his autobiography for an advance of $60,000 and was offered another $100,000 from the National Enquirer for serialization rights to the book. An editor worked with Peter in Palm Springs, but after two weeks, the man gave up in despair and the publisher canceled the contract. Peter refused to talk about what they really wanted him to talk about. Marilyn and the Kennedys. In 1984, Peter told the Los Angeles Times, Even if those things were true, I wouldn't talk about them. That's just the way I am. Plus the fact I have four children. I'm not going to embarrass them. I'm not going to embarrass the rest of the family. To avoid embarrassment at the time of Marilyn's death, Peter proved himself to be a master of prevarication. There was a great deal of press speculation over the identity of the mystery caller to whom Marilyn was supposed to have been speaking when she died, telephone in hand. Peter revealed to columnist Earl Wilson that it had been he. She said she felt sleepy and was going to bed, Peter said. She picked up the phone herself on the second ring, which leads me to believe that she was fine. She did sound sleepy, but I've talked to her a hundred times, and she sounded no different. In another interview a few days later, Peter claimed to know nothing of Marilyn's tortured emotional condition toward the end of her life. Quote, if she had fits of depression, they were behind closed doors. She was not the kind to come moaning around with her troubles. She was always gay. She made our parties when she came, unquote. Certainly a lot embedded in that. There's a particular quote here from John Houston that I want to intersect in. Sarah Churchwell will refer to this as a reminiscence at once candid and refreshingly fair-minded. I felt this important to include in. John Houston, co-star of Marilyn Monroe, will say about Monroe after her death, People say Hollywood broke her heart, but that's rubbish. She was observant and tough-minded and appealing, but she adored all the wrong people, and she was recklessly willful. You couldn't get at her. She was tremendously pretentious. She'd done a lot of that shit-ass studying in New York, but she acted as if she never understood why she was funny 
and that was precisely what made her so funny. In certain ways, she was very shrewd. If she was a victim, it was only of her own friends. I think there's something very telling in that. I'm going to go ahead and hop on back to James Spada here. On Monday, August 6th, Pat Lawford flew back to Los Angeles from Hyannisport to attend Marilyn's funeral. To the Lawford's shock, they and all of Marilyn's celebrity friends were barred from the services by Joe DiMaggio, who had taken over the funeral preparations. Peter was outraged at his exclusion. The whole thing was badly handled, he said. Marilyn had lots of good friends here in town who will miss her terribly and would love to have attended her final rites. Joe DiMaggio said publicly that the exclusions were necessary to avoid, quote, a circus, unquote, but his private comment got closer to the truth about the snub. If it wasn't for her so-called friends, Marilyn would still be alive today. It was a barb that hit home for Peter, as did another from Dr. Ralph Greenson, when he was asked who or what bore responsibility for Marilyn Monroe's death, quote, there's enough blame for everyone to share, unquote. And that's probably about the truth of it. Again from Spada, Peter spent the rest of his life haunted by the knowledge that a large portion of that blame was his. He had brought Marilyn into the sexually charged, politically dangerous vortex of the Kennedys, a world with which she was emotionally unable to cope. He had watched ineffectually as she repeatedly courted death with drugs and alcohol. He had been instrumental in creating the situation that would finally send her over the edge. And after she called out for help, he vacillated for hours as her life slowly slipped away. For years afterward, Peter would break into tears whenever the subject of Marilyn's death was raised. I blame myself for the fact that she is dead, he told journalist Malcolm Boys in 1982. In a 1984 interview with the Los Angeles Times, he said, To this day I've lived with this. I should have gotten my car and gone straight to her house. I didn't do it. At that point in the interview, he broke down and cried. The death of Marilyn Monroe will gut Peter Lawford and leave his life with definitely some consequences. His marriage with Patricia is already pretty much falling apart at the time of Monroe's death, but with the assassination of Patricia's brother, John F. Kennedy, the following year, November of 1963, this is sort of the last thing that ends the marriage. Patricia Kennedy is devastated over her brother's death. This is not the only sibling loss she has suffered in her life. Her oldest brother, Joe, her sister, Kathleen, known as Kick, both tragic deaths. Also, Patricia's sister, Rosemary, has been in an institution since 1941, 20 years now, from Daddy Joe Kennedy's decision to lobotomize Rosemary. Patricia is no stranger to loss, but the impact of JFK's death, the assassination, is truly gutting. Biographer Lawrence Lemer in The Kennedy Women says that the Lawfords' marriage was already falling apart, and she had problems with that. Then her brother dies, and in some ways, she never really came back from that. Patricia bounces back enough to know that she does want out of the marriage. She'll take off for the East Coast, New York City. Peter Lawford will stay in Santa Monica. 
Their divorce is finalized February 1st, 1966, after almost a dozen years of marriage. Patricia Kennedy will never remarry. She will devote the remainder of her life to charitable causes. She advocates for art and literacy endeavors, as well as does a tremendous amount of work for the National Center for Addiction. Patricia Kennedy passes away at the age of 82 in September of 2006. Peter Lawford's life will take him through three more marriages, all to significantly younger women than Peter. He still has charm and wit about him, Peter does, but the whole next 22 years of his life is going to be rough. Marilyn's death really does affect him. Alcohol, which had already been pretty invasive in Peter's life, becomes more so. Drugs will take a greater influence as well. Not that Peter won't have help. One of his good friends, Elizabeth Taylor, who Dominic Dunn will direct in the 70s in his film Ash Wednesday, is about to take one of her visits to the Betty Ford Center. She calls Peter Lawford and tries to convince him to come along. Peter Lawford, instead of coming along with his friend Elizabeth Taylor, will sell the story to the tabloids for a payday of $15,000 that Elizabeth is about to go check herself in. It's odd to me the dichotomy there of what Peter Lawford will sell out and the stories he won't tell for a far greater sum than that. Peter Lawford dies at the age of 61 in 1984 of liver and kidney failure. Again, 22 years of hard living to maybe try and forget. A few other updates here on some of our players. Frank Sinatra, as we know, has ditched Peter Lawford as a friend from the Rat Pack. Frank Sinatra will contact and reach out to the Kennedys one more time, even after that terrible vacation that doesn't happen in Palm Springs. Sinatra will reach out for a little help from the government when his son is kidnapped in 1963. Peter Lawford will remain friends with Sammy Davis Jr., both Peter and Sammy enjoy cocaine, which will keep them together, although Sammy's drug use will keep Frank Sinatra on the outs with Sammy Davis for a while. It is by the end of the 1970s that Peter's Palm Springs home is in foreclosure. He thought he could save it, but Peter Lawford is going to lose a part again because of Frank Sinatra. Peter Lawford was set to star in That's Entertainment 2, produced by Jack Haley Jr., but Frank Sinatra says that he won't do That's Entertainment 2 if Peter Lawford is in it. Frank Sinatra is relentless in his continuing hatred of Peter Lawford. After Marilyn's passing, that white poodle moth given to her by Frank Sinatra was given to Frank Sinatra's secretary, Gloria Lovell. It is Joe DiMaggio who had reconnected in 1962 with Marilyn that will make her final arrangements again allowing very few people to attend her service. Joe DiMaggio will send flowers to Marilyn's grave on the regular throughout his life. Joe is profoundly affected by her death as well. Truly, so many folks were in all aspects of our story. In concluding this particular arc, as Marilyn's funeral was so quiet and so private, the audio survives to 
a little bit of history which I think is remarkable. Marilyn's eulogy was given by Lee Strasberg, and this piece of audio does exist. It's quite phenomenal. I'm going to read it for you here to conclude. Marilyn Monroe was a legend. In her own lifetime, she created a myth of what a poor girl from a deprived background could attain. For the entire world, she became a symbol of the eternal feminine. But I have no words to describe the myth and the legend. I did not know this Marilyn Monroe. We, gathered here today, knew only Marilyn, a warm human being, impulsive and shy, sensitive and in fear of rejection, yet ever avid for life and reaching out for fulfillment. I will not insult the privacy of your memory of her, a privacy she sought and treasured by trying to describe her whom you knew to you who knew her. In our memories of her, she remains alive, not only a shadow on the screen or a glamorous personality. For us, Marilyn was a devoted and loyal friend, a colleague constantly reaching for perfection. We shared her pain and difficulties and some of her joys. She was a member of our family. It is difficult to accept the fact that her zest for life has been ended by this dreadful accident. Despite the heights and brilliance she attained on the screen, she was planning for the future. She was looking forward to participating in the many exciting things which she planned. In her eyes and in mine, her career was just beginning. The dream of her talent, which she had nurtured as a child, was not a mirage. When she first came to me, I was amazed at the startling sensitivity which she possessed and which remained fresh and undimmed, struggling to express itself despite the life to which she had been subjected. Others were as physically beautiful as she was, but there was obviously something more in her, something that people saw and recognized in her performances and with which they identified. She had a luminous quality, a combination of wistfulness, radiance, yearning, to set her apart and yet make everyone wish to be a part of it, to share in the childish naivete which was so shy and yet so vibrant. This quality was even more evident when she was in the stage. I am truly sorry that the public who loved her did not have the opportunity to see her as we did in many of the roles that foreshadowed what she would have become. Without a doubt, she would have been one of the really great actresses of the stage. Now, it is at an end. I hope her death will stir sympathy and understanding for a sensitive artist and a woman who brought joy and pleasure to the world. I cannot say goodbye. Marilyn never liked goodbyes but in the particular way she had of turning things around so that they faced reality, I will say au revoir. For the country to which she has gone, we must all someday visit. Investigators, thank you for joining me today and throughout our done and done journey. Can you believe it? 70 episodes with so many more stories still left to investigate. 
We will be back next week with something a little bit fun to celebrate Dominic Dunn's birthday, October 29th. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you for listening, for your kind reviews and emails, for joining the Dun and Dunn Patreon community. Y'all, what an adventure so far. I will definitely be dropping some more goodies over on Patreon until we meet again October the 29th. Investigators, thank you again for everything. Until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.